in the beginning, for sure, all we did was focus just on the joints. So let me just reposition this joint. Let me just adjust this joint and you'll be fine. Not taking into consideration the attachments, the muscles, the tendons, the ligaments. And what I do now is I do not have a degree in kinesiology. I don't have a certification in it, but most of the things I do are very kinetic. I do a lot of muscle balancing. I do a lot of pelvic balance, balancing and, um, and, and putting the spine in the proper curves more than adjusting. In fact, I can accomplish more just by getting muscles to fire, by balancing the pelvis, and then do the adjustment. You can't just do the adjustment alone, really. You have to address the firing of the muscle. And I would say the same thing. To, for physical therapists, people will come and say, well, I did 12 weeks of physical therapy and it didn't work. It's like, I look at me, do my squats. And I'm like, you're not doing squats. You're not firing your glutes at all. You're just using back. And I think a lot of practitioners, either they don't have the time to address it or the insurance won't let them delve into that because it takes a little bit more work to address the muscle, a little bit more time, but it is essential. It is a crucial without having your muscles firing properly. The adjustment will not hold. And I'll go one step further. If you are not eating the right mm -hmm. foods or if you're eating inflammatory foods or things that your body are rejecting, the adjustment won't hold either. Welcome to the HNL Movement Podcast, where everything is geared to leveling up your performance in activities, sports, and life. Join me in my professional journey as I share my knowledge and experiences while also learning from professionals, colleagues, clients, and you with one goal in mind, how to optimize human performance. This is the right place to learn how a multidimensional approach will sustain the performance and lifestyle you desire. Welcome back, everyone. I have a very, very exciting episode that I can't wait to release and for all of you to listen. This week on the podcast, I have Dr. Laura Jagat, and she has a very great story to share, awesome experiences growing up. And she was a chiropractor who just recently retired this year after 28 years in practice. She just retired after the COVID pandemic and decided to shut down and start this new chapter in her life. And she has turned into an entrepreneur and she has her business called How to Life. I recommend everyone to go check it out. It's such a great idea. She does these short video tutorials, which she calls mom and ours, to show basic life skills and teach the younger generation and her kids and even people like me how to do certain basic life skills as they navigate through life. In this episode, we dive into her story, how she played tennis and was a division one nationally ranked tennis player, her career as a chiropractor, and a lot of the concepts that overlap when it comes to taking care of people and helping them to perform better. Although she doesn't play tennis anymore competitively, she has found senior pro pickleball, which she really enjoys competing. And nowadays it keeps her very, very active. But without me saying any more, let's dive into the episode and listen in to all of the great stories. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome to the HNL Movement Podcast. And this week, I have an exciting guest. She is she has a great story, and she is starting her company called How to Life, and it's a company to 
educate and teach all of these life skills to young professionals or even people like myself. I learn a ton from listening to her podcast and her content. But let's welcome Dr. Laura Jagget to the podcast. Thank you for joining me. Hi, Andrew. Thank you very much for asking me to be on your show. This is exciting. This is a good It'll have so many gems in this show. So you come from this chiropractor background, but before we get into that, why don't you tell us a little bit about your story growing up, your career, and what led you to become a chiropractor? I haven't told this story in a long time. (laughs) I uh, grew up in Las Vegas. I was born in Las Vegas, Nevada, and I was raised there. And I was a tennis player. My father taught me to play when I was six years old, and he was my coach for my whole childhood into my adolescence. And I was nationally ranked since 12 years old. Every year I, was, uh, I went to the nationals, which I loved. Mm-hmm. And I got a full scholarship to the University of San Diego. So on my recruiting trip, my mother drove me down there. We were in a car accident. We were rear-ended mm. quite severely. And I had a tremendous whiplash that affected not just my neck, all the way down to my uh, sacroiliac joints. And I didn't know anything about my body back then. I just knew I couldn't move my neck and I, I couldn't walk. My legs would kind of give out on me. And my mother took me to every doctor in town. I had bone scans and MRIs and I was an orthopedist and neurologist because I had a concussion mm-hmm. from the whiplash and I, I couldn't play. Mm -hmm. This was on my recruiting trip and months afterwards. So one doctor on looking at my x-rays, which looked like that of a healthy 17-year-old girl, is like, I don't see any reason why you are not uh, being able to play or why Mm -hmm. your legs give out on you. Because as you know, x-rays only show bone and the bone was not the problem. But he didn't address that. He said, well, you're just not going to be able to play tennis which was not an acceptable answer because I was ready to get out and get on my own and move on to the next step. And I could not afford to go to the University of San Diego without that scholarship. As a last result, my mother's friend worked for a chiropractor and she said, why don't you try chiropractic? He has very good results. I didn't know what that was. My mother didn't know what it was. Mm -hmm. So she took me and I don't know what he did. I don't remember. I was 17 years old. All I knew was that after three months, by the end of the summer, I could, I could walk there. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I could play. Mm-hmm. So I was able to maintain my scholarship, went to school, played all four years without problem. Then my senior year, I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. And I was stressed about it. <laughs> and my mother said to me out of the blue, why don't you be a chiropractor? And I had never thought of that. And then I thought back to how that was a miraculous healing, which I didn't appreciate at that time, Uh but it was a miraculous healing. It seemed like it. So I thought I can do that. I'm an athlete. I understand the body. I said that when I was uh, 20 years old, which I didn't, but uh, I applied and I got in and I went And it really resonated with me. And that's how I became a chiropractor. Yes, it's always interesting to hear the stories of what led you to your career and your passion. And even for you growing up and everything, what was it like 
you know, besides that one severe injury where I'm sure there were a lot of struggles, what was it like growing up playing tennis and being nationally ranked? And what kind of drove you to become the best tennis player that you could be? Well, honestly, it was fear, mostly. I, my father put a lot of pressure on me, and he regrets it now. <laughs> <laughs> he says he's sorry. But there was, I played not to lose. I did not play to win. I played not to lose. And that's a big difference. Mm -hmm. And I had a lot of success doing that. But I wonder uh, what I could have done if I had played for fun or played to win. Yes. But on the positive side of it, I was in great shape. Mm -hmm. You know, my body serves me now because of all the training I had in the past. I loved playing nationals. I loved training. There was a certain amount of fame that came with it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with fame, there's responsibility as well. So I learned how to be a good example to others because people were always looking at me. So I was sportsmanship was important. And this was instilled by my parents as well. You know, I presented myself well. So I had a lot of recognition. I had great experiences traveling. It got me a scholarship. I got an education because of tennis. And actually, that was my father's goal when he's not a tennis player himself. He's actually a, a musician, a professional mm -hmm. musician. Uh, but he said, and this is a direct quote, there's no money to be made in music, so don't even get involved. So he did not teach us anything that he knew. So he took this sport, which back in the 70s, he thought, mm, by the time they're in college, this could be big. He taught himself how to play, and then he taught us how to play. And it got me and all of us through college. And well, it was that, a wonderful experience because of it. Yes, I'm sure that there were a lot of good times um, and great, great inspiration that your father pulled from this. And, you know, it's funny that you remember these direct quotes and everything and it stays with you to this day. But I'm sure that the preparation, the training and everything, I liked how you touched on there's so many applications or life lessons to be learned that you're still carrying on with you to this day. So let's talk about a little bit more about that, that injury, that summer with the few months. Was there anything that really was eye-opening or that you really learned from that experience besides uh, you going on to be a chiropractor? But was there anything at the time that you remember that stuck out to you? I remember being very determined when he told me that I was not going to be able to play tennis. It wasn't that I wanted to play tennis. It's that I wanted to leave and go to school. Mm. And I didn't accept that. So I think that's the first time that I was really aware and, and made a decision. It, it was a very calm feeling. It's like, nope, that is not an acceptable answer. I am going to go to school somehow. And I, you know, and then shortly thereafter, the chiropractor, my mother took me to the chiropractor and I don't remember being actively involved in it. Like, oh, this is going to be the answer. I didn't know what the answer was going to be, but I just knew that I was going to go to school on that scholarship and yes. that led me there. Yes. That's a great story. And I'm glad that you got to play all four years and you got to overcome that injury and especially in that fashion, right? It's not even a sports injury. It's just very unfortunate that you got into a car accident on your way there. So let's, let's talk a little bit about your collegiate career. How did that play out and what kinds of things did you learn? The reason why I want to touch on this is because your how to life 
podcasts and content and everything, it really reaches out to that college age, that young professional age where we're really trying to find our way in life oftentimes. So what did you learn during that period playing tennis? What kind of found your way to apply to chiropractic school and everything? College was an amazing experience. And I learned how to play on a team because tennis is an individual sport, but it was teams. I had to contribute to the overall success of the team. That's something I'd never done before. And I think when I was playing for myself, I either won on my own or I lost on my own and it didn't affect anybody else other than me. So now I felt this responsibility to really do well for my team and playing doubles. I learned how to play doubles in college because I had only been a singles player prior to that. Also, uh, learning that teamwork, how to communicate with someone without words, because you can't really discuss on the court what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. You have to have, be, have an awareness of what your partner is doing and be in sync with that. That was uh, something that really helped me in life within, mm-hmm. with, with friends, with, with partners, with business associates, mm-hmm. to learn how to work with somebody else. And also conditioning. I had never conditioned prior to going to college. I remember freshman year, our coach had us running around the campus, which I'd never done. I had never run. I'd never lifted weights. I never stretched. I never did anything other than play tennis. Mm -hmm. And I was crying. I'm like, what have I gotten myself into? I cannot do this. I, I just, I'm not strong enough. But as I learned, and this is what college and, and being in, this uh, elite collegiate uh, sports environment did, I can achieve whatever I think Mm -hmm. I cannot do, I can do. And that lesson has been repeated over and over in my life, whether it was starting a business or seeing a new patient or improving every year in my skills as a chiropractor, Mm -hmm. which I have. I get better and better and better. And now starting this new uh, second act, this podcast and brand that I have had a life, I have learned that I can always improve, always get better. And there's no, there's no ceiling, which is really exciting. Yes. I I really like what you said there because there's so many life lessons I've always said through sports and, you know, being part of a team and even just getting pushed, pushed out of your comfort zone. For myself included, you know, when someone pushes you out of your comfort zone, that's when you really start to grow and learn what you're actually capable of doing. And I'm sure a lot of that has carried over, you know, not only to health and fitness, but like you said, in your career and everything today. So what were some of the, being a collegiate division one tennis player, being nationally ranked growing up, what were some of your best memories in college? I'm sure there are many. Well, regarding the team, which took up at least 50% of my time at college. I loved the camaraderie of the Mm. girls on the team. I loved them all. We had uh, just a great connection. Our coach, uh, Sherry Stevens, who is still the the women's tennis coach at the University of San Diego, Uh was fantastic. She wasn't much older than we were, but we all learned and grew grew together. Uh, I loved just that camaraderie. I didn't have many friends growing up. If I did, it was one at a time. So now I was in this environment where I had a bunch of people mm-hmm. and we all cheered each other on. It was, it was absolutely wonderful. And I also learned how to mentor the younger girls. Mm-hmm. I remember freshman year, I was a wreck. 
I was so overwhelmed and I didn't know how to organize my schedule with tennis, but I had created my own little uh, formula for doing it. So as girls came in the following years and they were in the same overwhelmment that I was, Mm -hmm. I would offer to write out on a color-coded schedule for them their class schedule and their tennis schedule and show them how much time they actually downtime they did have. It was just a matter of getting organized. So it really helped my organizational skills as well. Sounds like a lot of that helps you to this day to teach the younger it population. It absolutely and, does. It absolutely and, does. And I know that we all can benefit from just getting more organized and, you know, having that mentor in our life too. Now with every athlete, there are a lot of good times, high times, right? But every athlete goes through adversity, uh, encounters some obstacles throughout their career. So was there anything in your college division one tennis career that was a big obstacle that you're proud of overcoming or has really helped you to this day? Well, there, there are two things. My whole life up until college, I had always won MVP in, in high school, uh, sportsmanships awards. So I've kind of have always been at the top, which I didn't appreciate back then. I just was always in fear and I never really celebrated that. Wow. I, uh, I made it, by the way, I did make it to the finals of the national championships as an unseated player when I was 16. I didn't really celebrate that. I just thought, Oh, I lost in three sets. That's not the point. So freshman year of college, I won MVP, which I, I guess I expected or I didn't really celebrate it because I had always won it. Mm-hmm. But the next year, there were a couple of girls that came in who really gave me a run for my money. And in fact, that was the first time that I lost my first seed position. I played number two singles and not number one. So that was kind of a little blow to the ego, but it made me work a little bit harder. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I was working hard to try to regain the number one spot I was just trying to be better. And Mm -hmm. that year, I did not win MVP, but what I won was most improved. And that is, to this day, uh, what I am most proud of in my tennis career was winning most improved sophomore year of college. That is awesome. And a lot of times we need that competition. We need someone that's going to bring out the best of us, whether that's you know, training and preparing more, or whether that's just doing all of the things that will help to elevate how you're performing. So that is a awesome story. Now in college, I'm, I know you had a great career, right? After college, was tennis still part of your life? Was it something that you stopped doing? Yeah, I was getting really tired towards the end of it. So if you remember, I started when I was six and it yes. wasn't, it wasn't really fun. I didn't see the fun in it at the time. Um, so senior year of college, I was just, I was done and more awesome players came in and there were four of us that were fighting for the number one spot my senior year. And it was, it was cutthroat, which is weird because we were all very friendly. And I said to my coach, just put me at number four, take, I'm, I'm just, I'm happy to play at number four, which ended up being fantastic because I won every match at number four. I didn't have to uh, compete with the other three, and I was content. Also, I I developed a bit of a wrist injury, and it was from overuse, Mm -hmm. and also your emotional state, your mental state, often 
all the time, by often I mean all the time, contributes <laughs> to injury. So I had this wrist injury. I was taped up before every match, and it was bad. I, it was really bad. I know now that I was just kind of done with that aspect. Mm. And when, we, when I finished my last match, I had, took a giant tennis bag with five rackets in it, and I threw it in the dumpster. Not in an aggressive, mean way, just yeah. in a, yeah, I am done. And I didn't play again for five years. Wow. I, I, that's how it's interesting to hear everyone's journey. Um, and you definitely accomplished a lot. It got you through school, right? Yeah. And just playing through all of these things, experiencing all of those great memories with your team and everything. I think that's irreplaceable and that will always stay with you forever. Now, in, so you went to University of San Diego, right? Yes, yes. What was your actual major? What were you interested in doing after college before you found out about chiropractic school? Right. So I didn't know what I wanted to do and I had to declare a major sophomore year. So I just declared psychology because I was always a helper. I was always trying to fix people. I was the one that everyone went to and shared their problems with. So I thought, well, that seems like a good fit. So I majored in psychology. And then somehow, I mean, science was never my favorite thing. I got a minor in chemistry, <laughs> which okay. was not my best class. I have a minor in English because I do like writing. And I had a minor in philosophy for some reason. <laughs> oh, that's, that's really interesting. And all of those, that blend of majors and minors, I think that really helps to helps you in what you're doing right now in this stage of your career. Absolutely. Before we get to that, let's talk about, okay, so you finally thought about applying to uh, going to school as a chiropractor, right? And getting, getting your license in that. So explain that process a little bit more and what actually ended up happening through school. Okay. So I applied, I had all the credentials. I think I had to take, oh, I did have to take a physics class when I, once I got accepted, I had to do a physics class, which I did at the university of Hawaii. I just want you to know. Wow. Oh, that's, that's awesome. So we do have some connections. We do. I lived, I actually lived there for the summer after I graduated and took my class and that was a good time. And I had a lot of friends who were from Hawaii that went to the university of San Diego. Wow. Yes, definitely. The University of San Diego always has a bunch of Hawaii people. Before we go on, how did you enjoy Hawaii for that one year? Well, I loved it. What can I, who doesn't? (laughs) It was fantastic. It was really a period of relaxation because I had, uh, because of tennis, I had to have Mm -hmm. all my classes in the morning and then I was practicing all in the afternoon. So I just really worked a ton. I had been working always school, tennis, school, tennis, school, (laughs) tennis. Finally, when I graduated that summer in Hawaii was just completely carefree and wonderful. Awesome. I'm glad that you got to experience Hawaii for more than just a vacation, um, even though it was for summer school, but that's, that's an awesome it was still experience. Fun. It was yes. still fun. So after that, you applied. And then how did that play out um, transitioning into chiropractic school? So I, I applied in May and I got accepted for the September class. Mm-hmm. And this would have been in September of 88. But I was just tired. So I elected to go in in January. And so I took mm-hmm. that semester off. I don't think I really did anything other than just rest, which I really appreciated. And then I started in January. I went to Los Angeles College of Chiropractic, which is in Whittier, California. Mm-hmm. It has changed names since then. I think it's now called the Southern California 
School of Applied Sciences. Okay. They do more than chiropractic. Mm-hmm. But that's where I went. It was a small class of about 150 students, and we were in big, giant lecture halls, which I was not used to because I went to the University of San Diego, which is a small private school, mm-hmm. and everything was really scaled down. So there was that, and the fact that it was a doctorate program was a little overwhelming because even though I had accomplished quite a bit in my life, everything I had done, I did really well. I was still very nervous and insecure and afraid of failing, so afraid of failing, Mm -hmm. but uh, went through it, made some good friends. I actually uh, met the man that I would end up marrying and who would be the father of my four children. We started a business together. I made great friends. I learned a ton. After I graduated, you know, they're like, okay, you're a chiropractor now. Go out and practice. I'm like, I have no experience doing this. And again, the fear and insecurity started again (laughs) from right all over again. Will I ever not be afraid and insecure? Yes. I mean, I think we're always, you know, whenever something new, this change happens, then that always seeps in a little bit. So after you did graduate and you became a chiropractor, how did you start off your career? How did that play out? I became what is called an associate. And because I was getting married and my future husband was from New York, I moved to New York, New York City, which I'm from the West Coast is completely different. And I really hadn't been to the East Coast, so I didn't know what to expect. But I applied to, I think, every chiropractor. I sent my resume, I sent everything and asked for a job. And I uh, got a job on Park Avenue. And I moved to New York, and I was ready to start. And I don't remember, it fell through somehow. But he didn't call me. There was a lot of drama involved and a lot of tears, which just stemmed Mm -hmm. from my own insecurity. But I found another job. So I worked on Lexington and 52nd Street. We lived in Manhattan, which in this walk-up I mean, I grew up in a a ranch house with a lot of land. So to go into this little (laughs) tiny apartment that was 100 years old was a culture shock. But I got a lot of experience working on patients, just working on bodies, even though I was the associate doctor. So I worked for a woman for a couple of years, and she wanted to be done. So she hired me to take over her practice, which was probably not the best thing because I had no experience on how to do that. But I had to learn quickly how to talk to people and convert them into patients and do good work for them and learn to interact with staff. It was a good experience. Um, But then that ended and I got another job with another man where he saw 80 people a day. Wow. Or I should say, I saw 80 people a day. (laughs) It was, I had to step it up 10 notches because I was used to just taking my time and speaking. We had to move really quickly and still good, give good care in that short amount of time. Mm-hmm. There was also a period where I had to teach the uh, rehabilitative exercises. I had to take x-rays. So I really honed my skill on x-rays. Woo! I got good on x-rays at that office. And because he was a very kind of a high-profile chiropractor, I got to see some celebrities and teach them. Mm-hmm. exercises, which is weird. I remember Carly Simon walked in. I'm like, oh my God, there's Carly Simon. And she's just a regular person who doesn't know how to do these exercises. And it was my job to teach her. Yes. That sounds like you had a lot of great experiences, a lot of patient interactions. Um, uh, yeah. Throughout your career, 
So after, after that, how long did you stay in New York? I was in New York for a total of two years. And then okay. we moved back to Las Vegas because at the time, Las Vegas was booming and mm-hmm. New York was pretty saturated. I mean, yeah, you could start a practice in New York. But at that time, I thought, oh, it's just too saturated. We can't break in. So we moved back to Las Vegas where I at least knew people, I thought. And we bought a practice. My husband at the time was a chiropractor. His brother was a chiropractor. So the three of us started our own business in Las Vegas. And uh, we had it for 15 years. Wow. And the rest is history, I guess. Well, (laughs) there's a lot of history. There's a lot. So it was, you know, it was scary at first. I remember my brother-in-law, we'd be sitting in the office. We had taken out a loan. We had built out our office and he would pick up the phone every once in a while and then just hang it up. And I asked him, what are you doing? He goes, I'm just making sure the phone works. (laughs) Especially in the beginning. Yes. All of that, you know, just uncertainty, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was nerve wracking, but you know, you meet people, there's all kinds of things that just which seem like uh, random events, but it's all orchestrated and it all unfolded. We, we met people, so we met an attorney who uh, had access to a lot of patients mm. and because we became friends with him and we're still friends with him to this day, he started feeding us some people and then they start talking and then mm. you start developing, uh, yes. you know, your reputation. And the growth that you have serviced so many people, it sounds very interesting. So to touch on that a little bit more, what would you say your primary demographic is that you worked with professionally as a chiropractor? So in the beginning, it was personal injury patients, and there were a lot of them. And it, we made a very good living doing it. It got a little tiring as it went on because there is a tremendous amount of paperwork that is involved and you are sort of restricted. It's, it's a bit of a game. You know, the attorney has a job, the insurance company has a job, the chiropractor has a job, the other medical doctors have a job and the patient has a job and everyone has to do their job for this case to succeed. Now there's a lot of money to be made, but it's very tiring, a little bit demoralizing at times because you have a lot of patients who they got in a car accident. So things probably weren't going really great in their life to begin with. And that is sort of their persona and they Mm -hmm. come in and it takes a long time for them to heal. Also, you're a little restricted on what you can do. The attorney will say, okay, well, for the case's sake, because the insurance company Mm -hmm. said, listen, it has to be this way. You can only do this or you have to do this. And I, after a while, uh, it got a little demoralizing. It's mm-hmm. like, I don't feel like I'm properly treating this patient. Yes. So there was that. That lasted until about 2009 when the three of us decided to part ways. Mm-hmm. And um, then I took a break. I had four children and uh, my husband at the time was trying to start another business. And I'm like, good, I'm just going to focus on my kids now because mm-hmm. they're a job in and of themselves. It was very stressful for me to be a part of that business and do the best job I could for my kids. So Mm -hmm. it was nice at the time that I could just focus on them. But uh, jumping forward to 2012, Mm -hmm. uh, I realized I need to go back. Uh, I kept my license in an active status, but 
still had it. Like I have to go back and, and work. The business didn't take off as we had hoped, but I thought this time I'm doing it differently. I'm not doing personal injury. And there's something interesting about momentum. You know, we had this momentum for 15 years of personal injury. That's who everyone knew us as. We had a giant practice that encompassed all of Las Vegas. So everyone knew and said, oh, Laura Jaggett's back in business. So everybody wanted to feed me these personal injury patients. And I had mm-hmm. to say, I, no, thank you, which is hard to, to <laughs> turn down an easy $5,000. That's hard. Mm-hmm. It's a hard thing to do. But I just wanted to have a cash practice. I wanted to have just a small one-room practice with no staff. And I set about doing that. And people said, you are never going to make money doing it that way. And my answer was, I may not make this amount of money I made in personal injury, but it's going to be a lot more fun. And it was. Yes. I'm, I'm glad you said that. I, that. That's actually one of my questions that I have for you is that we both know the healthcare industry right now, how it's set up is that there is becoming more hoops you have to jump through, more hurdles. Insurance is dictating the least amount of treatment to try to get this person back, right? And it's the same across the board with doctors, physical therapy, anything, chiropractors, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm glad that you said that you started a cash practice, but there's a couple questions that I want to ask off of this, off of what you just said was, the first thing is that what's your perspective on, I know you mentioned it's hard when you're not doing probably what's best for the patient because insurance is dictating the treatment plan. So what can you do or what kind of advice do you have in that situation to still be in guidelines with what insurance is covering, but also to educate or help the patient to the best of your ability? I would do just that. I would help them to the best of my ability. And I know other doctors who were in the same area. They would just be uh, in and out, crack, crack, go, not really even talking to the patients. I would spend that little extra time. It was a little stressful because we had a lot of people who need to be heard. Some of them are there. Some of them are part of the the game. They just like check in, check out. They're fine. But there are some who sincerely are they really want to get better. They really are hurt and they really have things to say. So me personally, I would take that little extra time to listen and to do the best job that I could. And it taxed me a little bit. I mean, I was there probably longer than I could be. And, you know, it's, it's a hard balance because you know, there's a whole bunch of people waiting to get in, but I want to give them the same attention that I just gave the person that was holding them up. Yes. You can really tell that you care and you pour all of your efforts into your client to really help them. Now, fast forwarding a little bit. So when you kind of revived your career, right, for the second time after taking that break, and now you've gone cash-based. Now, a lot of companies, businesses are going cash-based now because it takes away that restrictions that insurance and the healthcare system sets on how you can treat that patient. And some people may have the misconception that, oh, it's just to try to make money, but it's not because actually now you're not getting reimbursed by insurance. You're just charging for what your services are. But explain a little bit about how that experience is how that experience was going cash base and how you were really able to elevate the care for all of your clients. Sure. 
going cash-based, first of all, it actually saved me money. I did not make as much money as I did when I was working with the insurance or in personal injury. However, the savings were huge. I did not have to hire staff. I did not have to pay for postage repeatedly when you have to rebill three, four times because somebody loses it or it gets denied. I didn't have to deal with that. I didn't have to uh, pay utilities or uh, for a building because I just rented a room in an existing practice or some sort of, I was in an acupuncturist office for a long time. So I saved money there. Also, I had time. I did not have a million forms for them to fill out. It was very, very brief. They did not have to get permission from their insurance company to come see me. I did not have to ask the insurance company's permission. How many times can I see this person? I truly had 100% freedom to listen to what the problem was, do my own evaluation, and treat the person, person as I saw fit. And they were happy about that. It takes a little bit of getting used to, even for, from the patient standpoint, especially if you're used to being using your insurance. But I, my prices were very low. I did not charge the prices that we charged when we did insurance, which we had to charge because when the insurance cuts you, you end up getting what you get for charge for cash anyway. Yes. So that I didn't have to deal with that inflation thing. It was a huge relief. I felt better. I felt better about everything. I felt free. And I think that that vibration I had going on, the patient felt it too. So it was really a wonderful working relationship I had with them. No, that's awesome. And I think that's where healthcare is going to trend towards in the future because with the trend of insurance restricting more and more of the services that are needed, and also I talk about this in other episodes, but insurance kind of being more reactive, right? They're not they're not reimbursing for the preventative services. They're not reimbursing for some of the things that will make a big difference on someone's life, right? Because again, it's a business, right? It has to be, it has to be um, feasible for the insurance company, but also has to be make sense for what they're going to cover for each patient. So I think the trend's going to be, we're going to see more cash-based services. We're going to see more professionals trying to help the whole person rather than just what the insurance is prescribing or dictating to us. Now, going through your career, I mean, it sounds like you've had so many experiences transferred into this cash-based practice. And, you know, it was a lot more setting that you could control and really help the patients. Now, what were some of the, the well, let's start with some of the good times. What were some of the the best things about being a chiropractor throughout all of your years that you enjoyed the most? Well, I think overall, it's just helping people. Oh, you know, when you take it, strip everything away. I have always helped people. I enjoy helping people. I enjoy soothing them. Not, not just physically, but emotionally as well. I really do like that. I like the ability to put your hands on someone, the connection that happens when you put your hands on someone and you feel them relax to your touch because they respond to you. So I really was able to hone in and develop that aspect of my practice, of me personally, um, with, through touch. I, I like that very, very much. And the information I can get from touch, again, not communicating verbally. They could tell me one thing, and then I go and touch the body. And I'm at a point now where I'm very intuitive mm -hmm. about it. 
I can really, I have a very good touch, a good sense of what's going on. I, I love that. I love that I can do that. And it translates, you know, even into my kids. I can look at them. I can just do a scan. I watch people uh, walking, which is funny. It's not uh -huh. something that uh, I'm <clears throat> conscious of, but I'm very aware. I'm like, oh, that guy has short hamstrings. Oh, yeah. that person. Uh, <laughs> you know, I can tell what's going on just by watching someone walk. There was once somebody sent, I saw a picture of this pretty girl on a, on a treadmill and the photo was designed to look at the girl. They're like, wow, look at this girl. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, all I see is that she's got in bad internal rotation of her left leg and that needs to be addressed. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, I will put up some highlights, but I'm, I'm laughing to myself because it's something that I guess when you do on a daily basis, right? Like, if you're a mechanic, you're going to pay attention to what the car is doing, right? And you're going to pick up things that the average person doesn't notice. For our profession, I'm not a chiropractor, but I we're laugh because, profession. yes, I laugh because tons of the time, like I could be out with my girlfriend and then it's like, oh, that person looks like in, they're in pain. And I'm like, yeah, they're not using their hip. This is happening. This is happening. This is happening. Most likely, you know, of course I'm not there with them, but then, you know, I'm looking at it at a different perspective than most. And it's funny because you just, it's, I guess what you do on a daily basis. So we don't realize that we're actually doing it sometimes when we're still doing it. It's like, we can't turn it off, but that is exactly true. You, you understand the body and movement. Now I, I want to ask you about this question too, because I do know some chiropractors that are certified athletic trainers and chiropractors. And I think the misperception of chiropractors is that you just do adjustments, joint mobs and manips, and then everything else doesn't get reinforced. Right. But I know the chiropractors that are very good. They're very into the movement based. Um, in fact, one of my colleagues just during the COVID times went on a, free like workshop for chiropractors. And one of the chiropractors was saying that they actually um, are way more into movement, especially as the profession trends onwards. And a lot of the things that they're certified in is what physical therapists and athletic trainers are certified in. So there's a lot of overlap with all of these professions, but just to, if you can elaborate on that a little bit more, like what's your philosophy or perspective on how to take care of your body. It's not just one thing. Mm -hmm. It's not just about setting C1. Mm -hmm. I mean, that can help. But I think a lot of chiropractors, and maybe not a lot, but in the beginning, for sure, all we did was focus just on the joints. So let me mm -hmm. just reposition this joint. Let me just adjust this joint and you'll be fine. Not taking into consideration the attachments, the mm -hmm. muscles, the tendons, the ligaments. And what I do now is I do not have a degree in kinesiology. I don't have a certification in it, but most of the things I do are very kinetic. I do a lot of muscle balancing. Mm -hmm. I do a lot of pelvic balance, balancing and, um, and, and putting the spine in the proper curves more than adjusting. In fact, mm -hmm. I can accomplish more just by getting muscles to fire, by balancing the pelvis, and then do the adjustment. You can't just do the adjustment alone, really. You have to address the firing of the muscle. And I would say the same thing to, for physical therapists. People will come and say, well, I did 12 weeks of physical therapy, and it didn't work. 
It's like, I look at me, do my squats. And I'm like, you're not doing squats. You're not firing your glutes at all. You're just using back. And I think a lot of practitioners, either they don't have the time to address it or the insurance won't let them delve into that because it takes a little bit more work to address the muscle, a little bit more time. But it is essential. It is a crucial Without having your muscles firing properly, the adjustment will not hold. And I'll go one step further. If you are not eating the right Mm -hmm. foods or if you're eating inflammatory foods or things that your body are rejecting, the adjustment won't hold either. Yes. And we share a lot of the same overlapping philosophies. So it's very good for you to hear. And I know a lot of my listeners will really benefit from those words because all of these tools are pieces of the puzzle and really making them work together, tie them together. That's really what will help you to enhance your performance and be healthy and fit. Now, before we get on to what you actually do, I do have to have the opposite question. So what were some of the obstacles or hard times that you've experienced through your chiropractor career? Well, I say personally would be my own insecurity about my inexperience but what I failed to realize that even though I felt, wow, I don't know enough to help this person, I knew more than the person who was there asking me to help them. So I think I could have moved a little bit further, quicker, if I had just had more belief in myself. And I don't know if that's with every chiropractor. That was just me. I just was always, I never thought that I was good enough for a long time. I did not like the... Um, PI circus, I have to say it's a, it's a giant wheel and it can't change. It's too big and the, the wheel's too big and it's been spinning in this way for so long. It, it cannot be changed in a second. So I had to jump off and which is fine. You know, it's still spinning to this day, but I jumped off personally, which really was liberating to me. I've actually had people come and say, oh, I was in a car accident and I want to come see you. This is when I had my cash practice. And I said, I'm happy to treat you, but if you are pursuing this as a personal injury case, I, you coming to me is not going to help you at all. The insurance company is not going to reward you for this low bill. They're mm-hmm. going to look at it and say, oh, you weren't really hurt. Mm-hmm. So I did not like that aspect that they associated the size of the bill and the length of the treatment time with the severity of the injury. That mm-hmm. is not a proportional at all in real life. Mm-hmm. So when I broke out on my own, I could treat them as I wanted. And actually people do heal quicker. Mm-hmm. You don't have to do three, six, nine months. You can get done a lot quicker and yes. better without somebody breathing down you. So I, I didn't like that aspect, but overall, I, I really like being a chiropractor. I love mm-hmm. what I have learned because of it. I have four children. I have been their primary care physician for all four of them. Mm-hmm. The oldest one is 25. The youngest one is 14. They have never been to a pediatrician. <laughs> I was, I'm the one that took care of them. No, two of them, the oldest two had antibiotics once. And that's mm-hmm. because I decided this is a situation where we need antibiotics. But the other two have never had antibiotics ever. Yes. And they get sick, but very infrequently. And it's only for a while. As soon as somebody gets sick in my family, my kids, I uh, strip the diet. There's no dairy. There's no sugar. We go protein, vegetables, and water. 
and love and baths (laughs) and uh, adjustments. I adjust them. My kids uh, get adjusted a lot and they say to their friends, I I don't understand how you can go through life without getting adjusted. (laughs) Yes, I, that's this is a whole nother episode conversation. But no, I'm glad that you have that perspective and you do help your kids, right? And all of these struggles that you, you overcame during your career, right? Let's transition into you recently retired. So congratulations on retirement. I was and, forced into retirement, but I didn't mind it at all, actually. Yes. And unfortunately, with uh, the COVID pandemic and everything, but I think all of your struggles, right, it has kind of helped you to be very effective at the platform that you're creating. So let's talk about a little bit about that. Like, how, how did this come up to be? What were some of the factors that really influenced you and pushed you into creating your platform, How Do Life? This is a good question. And I have not uh, talked about this publicly. So here it is. That I, I created or I thought of how to life back in 2018. I was living in Bend, Oregon, and I thought that I was going to retire from my chiropractic practice and start a new life in Bend. Actually, I was going to get my my license in, in Oregon, but I wasn't doing it enthusiastically. So I was thinking, I'm very limited with the amount of people I can see as a chiropractor. I can only do so much. I can only help. I can only physically, it's a very physical job and it's tiring. So there's a cap. And I was thinking, what can I do that is fun that I can do from anywhere in the world and that can sustain me and reach more people than what I'm doing now. So I thought about it and I journaled about it for a while, every once in a while. And it was not something like I honed in on it and I was, you know, up against the wall. It's just something that I thought of lightly and I would write exactly what I wanted, something that'll help the world, something I can do from anywhere, something that is not physically taxing, something that allows me to do other things that I love and something that's going to sustain me and take care of me and my family for the rest of my time here. And I remember the day that it came to my head. It was March 18th, 2000, March 14th, 2018. Mm-hmm. And I had seen a picture on Instagram, which I'm not on, but my daughter is. And I thought it was her. So I clicked on the picture. I'm like, what is she doing posting this picture? And it was not her. It was another woman named Jenna Kutcher, who is very big in mm-hmm. the uh, podcast world and, and this online world. And I'm like, who is this person? So I started investigating, looking into her, and she had a podcast, and she was a photographer, and she created this whole thing herself. And I'm like, yes, that's what I want to do. How can I reach this? And then all of a sudden, I thought, I can teach people my my kid's age how to do basic life skills because they don't know how to, that you have to clean the uh, lint trap in the dryer. (laughs) Just these little tiny two-minute, three-minute videos, which I call mominars. It's a seminar given by a mom, a mominar. Uh-huh. And the idea struck me. When it struck me, I was struck. It was like this aha move, moment that was, that is it. That's it. And then for the next two months, I just delved into it. I'm like, surely somebody has come up with this idea. I researched it. No. And then... 
I'm like, what am I going to call it? And I tried a few things and it, how to life came pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to say it was a voice in my head, but it definitely, all of a sudden it was there in my mind as if it had always been there. How to life. I go, surely someone has that name. Looked it up. No. <laughs> and everything I said, surely this has been done. Surely so- no one had done it. And I'm getting more and more excited that this, this is my niche. This is what I am going to to fill. I'm going to be the one that fills. I'm going to be the authority. When someone has a question, they're going to come to How to Life. Well, let's see if Dr. Lord Jagged, Dr. LJ has put a video about it or talked about it. So uh, the two months of the research, which I'm a very good researcher because I'm a bit of an introvert, was just 16 hours, 18 hours a day yeah. researching and thinking and planning. And I was not tired at all. That's how you know you're in the flow of something. When you're having fun and you don't feel that 12 hours have gone by. Then when I had everything uh, lined up and I'm like, okay, I'm going to do these videos because it was only videos at the time. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do these videos and these are the topics. I had my first 10 topics. This is my schedule. And by this month, I'll do this, this, this. And by S- December, I'll be here. So at the end of June, when I was ready to start, I came to a screeching halt because I'm like, I don't know anything about this world. I don't know how to video, take a video. I don't know how to edit. I certainly don't know how to speak in front of a camera. And uh, it came to a screeching halt. And I have to tell you, my knee-jerk reaction was to just be angry with myself and really beat up on myself for failing. Again, playing to, uh, to not fail rather mm-hmm. than playing to win. But I, enough time has gone by and I have gained enough wisdom over the years that I just decided, you know, I can just, I can imagine and I can think in my head and that's still doing work. It might not be the physical work, but it's better to, to be thinking about it. So for the next six months or so, I thought and imagined and I listened to podcasts and I watched videos and I followed people and one led to another And I just learned and I was just gathering information Mm -hmm. and getting up my courage to do it. I wrote a few scripts for the first ones. And then on Black Friday, I had been researching cameras. I bought some equipment Uh ready to do it. I didn't do it yet, but at least I bought the equipment. Uh, And then I just kind of um, took my time. And then as March of 2019 was approaching, I thought that's it. It was the same decision, just like when uh, the doctor told me I couldn't play tennis. I just wouldn't be able to play tennis. March was approaching. I said, there's a video going up for sure. And I had no fear about it, even though I, I was insecure and it wasn't going to be perfect. And all the people I had found, all the mentors I had found that said, it's the, the first thing you put up is always going to be the worst it's ever going to be. And people aren't going to judge you like you're judging you. Just get it up. So I made this video and there were tears. There were tears. And I think I did it two or three times because I hated it so much. But I just put it up there on March 14th of 2019. That was the first video, my first step into this world. Mm -hmm. I made maybe uh, eight more videos through 2019. And then 2020 happened and everything in my world shut down. So I just 
decided I'm going to put all of my attention on how to life. The universe has made it so <laughs> that I have no excuse to look anywhere else other than, than producing content for this brand. And I've been going full steam and it's just picking up every month. It gets faster and faster. That is awesome to hear. And to give a little backstory. So how we actually got connected is through Pat Flynn. For those that don't know Pat Flynn, he's an entrepreneur that helps other entrepreneurs, you know, grow their businesses, startups. And he has tons of resources, a lot of podcasting resources. We both uh, went through his podcasting courses and it helped us launch our podcast. But recently he created this circle community with 500 entrepreneurs that can connect and, you know, help each other out and support each other. And that's how we got connected. So it's, I'm sure you feel the same way as many people do is that it's an awesome community. It helps us grow so much together. Really, that's how we connected. And when I heard your story, I was thinking, I can't believe that you're not bigger than you actually are because the concept is so good. And not only do the young professionals, uh, young demographic benefit from this, but even people in their adult life, for example, you just put out a podcast on budgeting with a financial expert and I'm listening to this and I'm thinking a lot of this is exactly what I need to be hearing right now. That's completely out of my world. Right. But how do you get all of your content ideas and do you bounce them off of your kids or do you have people that you talk to? Yes, actually. And, and full disclosure, I learn something on every episode as well. I'm still learning. You're, you, you never stop learning. Yes, whenever, as going back to your question about the content, I do think of my children. I have uh, four kids. Three of them are in their adult, early adulthood, 25, 23, and 20. I know what they don't know. I know the questions they ask me. So whenever I produce something, I ask questions for them. And I assume their friends kind of had the same questions. And I remember back when I was young, you know, like, I wish I, somebody would have taken my hand and shown me how to do this or told me. Because you don't teach. They, these things aren't taught in school. You don't really learn them until you're faced with them. So I have, um, I always think of my kids. I ask them and I ask my audience, what do you guys want to know? I had somebody write to me and say, I don't know how to iron a shirt. So that's actually my next mom and I are coming up, how to iron a shirt. And I've told my kids many times how to do this. In fact, the term mom and I came about because I would, my kids would ask me questions. And because there are four of them at different ages, I'd get the same question. I'm like, I'm just going to make a video for you guys so that you can just reference the video and I don't have to keep repeating myself. It's kind of how it started. Also, when there's a video uh, you can watch it as many times as you want rather than ask your parent, wait, how do you do this again? And you, you escape the exasperation and all the sighs and the eye rolling. You can just watch the video as many times as you want. But what I have found from the uh, SPI community, and by the way, I am here because of Pat Flynn. I am forever grateful to that man. And uh, everyone that I have met has been so generous and so encouraging, generous with their knowledge generous with their time, uh, and as far as relating to me, wanting to, to share. I, I put out a post, would you like to be a guest on my podcast? I had so many responses. Uh, you included, Andrew. It's like, yes, I would love to share with this next generation. We want to help them, to soothe them, that it's okay. Here's some, some advice. Here's some tips. 
you're doing just fine and you'll have your own experiences and you'll gain wisdom in your own way. But what I really want to convey is that everything is fine. You're doing just fine. You're exactly where you need to be and you're only going up. And even if you think you've made a wrong turn, you really didn't because you're picking up some experience that's going to take you and further to where you want to go in a better way. So uh, it's, it's wonderful. It's my second act. I'm really, really enjoying it. And I have this podcast now, which I didn't even intend to do in the beginning. I was having a conversation with a young woman on January 29th of this year. I remember the day. And she was just kind of talking about a problem she had. And I was discussing with her and again, trying to soothe her. And then after a while, she just stopped and she looked at me and she said, you should do a podcast. And I thought, podcast? I never even considered that. What's a podcast? Because I never listened to one myself. And so that's how the podcast started. And I really enjoy the podcast. I had no idea. It's so funny how things just all unfold perfectly. And all of your experiences and everything, I think it sets the stage well for all of the things that you're going to accomplish. And we could keep talking on and on about all of these things. Um, we will definitely collaborate more in the future and I would like work that. together. Yes, work together and really help the younger generation just in all aspects of their life, right, is kind of what we talked about. But for those that want to see more, and I encourage all of my listeners to go check it out. For those of you that want to learn more about How to Life, where can they find you, Laura? They can find me on my website, which howtolife.com. And on the website, all the mominars are, and all the podcast episodes are housed there. That is howtolife.com. You can also find the mominars on YouTube at How to Life. Uh, the podcast is on virtually every po podcast pla platform. It's called How to Life as well. I have an Instagram account, How to Life Now. And right now I have a, a Facebook profile. It's not a group or a page. It's just under Laura Jagged. But the only thing that's there is How to Life stuff. So you can find me there as well. And if you want to send me a direct email, if you have a question or you have a a topic that you would like me to make if you want me to make a podcast or a mominar for you for a specific question you have you can reach me at drlj at howtolife.com oh and i have a new feature on my website which i just added you can leave me a voice message i haven't tried it out yet but somebody leave me a voice message because that'll be fun to see how that works Oh, that's awesome. I didn't even know that you could do that. I mean, we're constantly learning <laughs> yeah, more and more things and keep up the great work. There's so many great, so much great content that you're putting out there and everyone go check out everything. I will include it in the show notes. But before we end, is there any last words of wisdom that you could share to the population? I mean, the listeners out there and just the general population. Yes, I just want to let you know that everything is working out fine for you and things are always working out for you no matter how bad it seems. If you look back, you have a 100% success rate of getting over all your obstacles because you're still here. Use that, acknowledge that and just say, guess what? I have a 100% success rate. You're not going to find those odds anywhere. It's going to be okay. You're doing just fine and uh, you got this. I love your message. Keep up all the great work and we look forward to seeing all of the 
great content that you're put out in the near future and even beyond that. But thank you so much for joining me. It was excellent talking to you and we'll definitely connect and collaborate a lot more in the future. So thank you so much again. Thank you, Andrew, for having me. It's an honor to be on your show. 